Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacatur, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. This is an episode for any organization that has a complex story to tell. Kristen Palia from PS Arts shares how her organization communicates their value using evaluation and data, but also how they use the organization budget and financials to tell that story. It's really inspiring to hear how intentional they are about showing people the importance of arts education. Uh, Trent, great to see you. It's always great to see you, Julie. Thank you. Um, you told me to talk to PS Arts about, and you said, talk to them about using your 990 as a marketing document. I did. Do you remember this? I do. Okay. <laughs> Tell me what you saw in their 990 as marketing. Do you well, remember? Yeah, absolutely. I just think you know, they did what every nonprofit should do, which use which is to use every document, every solicitation, every letter, every chance on your own website to tell your story. Um, you know, too often I think we think of marketing as um, misleading people, um, doing a commercial in some way or another, even being, you know, kind of unholy in the way that you um, proselytize on your behalf. In reality, you know, marketing is just telling your story um, and, you know, you can tell it honestly. And so PS Arts is just a great example of an organization that took a document, important to remember, a public document that everyone in the country has access to um, and utilize it as not only a tax reporting document, but a chance to tell their story, to tell it well, to talk about the number of people they serve, to talk about the talent of their executive team, to talk about what they're trying to do in the years to come, talking about why they were successful and how they benchmark and how they evaluate their organization. Um, there's room there. Um, you don't have to just put down numbers and, and turn and run. So they just saw it as an opportunity. There's nothing extra in there. There's nothing inflationary. There's nothing that you can doubt in any way whatsoever. It's all data. It's all facts. Um, but they saw an opportunity and they used this public document to tell their story. And it's just very impressive. It just shows um, attention to detail. Um, and it also shows a leadership team that I think is quite visionary and understands that when given an opportunity, sees it. Yeah. And in talking to them, we, we didn't really talk too much about their 990s because they were like, oh, we just do it. Um, and they were so casual about it. But what I found when speaking to them was they are, to your point, living their marketing. Sure. It's, it comes out through everything. They're great. They're great storytellers. And I don't mean that as like they're weaving some tale that doesn't exist, but they're very intentional about saying – Here's what's important to us as an organization, and here's how we live it in everything we do, from how we tell our financial story to how we talk about our administration and overhead to, to even how we staff. And it was such a great conversation. So thanks for, thanks for suggesting I talk to them. Sure. I mean, here's the crazy thing about the 990 is that it's a public document. We all know it's a public document. Um, and yet executive directors of too many nonprofits live in fear of having the rest of their employees find out how much money they make oh, right. um, because you have to report the five largest salaries in your organization on your 990. 
any executive director who thinks that the people in his or her organization don't know what he or she makes to the penny is insane and naive. They know exactly what you make. This is the choice that we made when we entered the nonprofit world and our salaries are public. So what happens is in too many cases, the executive director tries to bury that document and doesn't share it with everybody on the staff that they should share it with. It should go to the marketing team. It should go to the communications team. It shouldn't just die in the accounting team. Share it with everybody. Share it with your board. Own what you make. Hopefully you deserve it and get everybody's input on how to make that document a fuller, richer, more developed document that shows your organization in the absolute best light. Um, I think people are just afraid of, of what's on that document only because it has your salary and it's in the nonprofit world. We don't want anybody to know what we make because I don't have any idea why not. We just need, you know, it's just, it was the choice that we made. Go with it, own it, and get everybody's input on the document. And you really will um, appreciate it in the long run. I actually think that most organizations, I think that's true for sure. But I also think most organizations are so tired of going like of of the audit process and like sure. preparing financials and it's so it's so arduous for them to go through that when they're done they're just done and they treat it like um like a homework assignment that you're like I finished that I handed it in it's gone instead of being very strategic and intentional about it it becomes something that's like we have to do this so let's just get through it rather than um really looking at what story does this tell and how can we use this? Sure. I think that's fair. Although I still think it's the salary issue you do? Um, personally, but, um, but you only get so many bites at the apple in telling your story. And here's a free one. You have to file this document no matter what. Mm -hmm. If you don't, they, you know, the AG knocks on your door and, and eventually will shut you down. So you're going to file this document. Why not make it as rich and developed and as good at telling your story as humanly possible? Why let it just die between you and the accounting team? Um, you know, it, it, it's going to get out there. Places like Charity Navigator, places like GuideStar are going to post it for the world to see. And in most cases, they're going to post it for people to see who aren't automatically uh, familiar with your organization, potentially new donors. Yeah. Um, and those are people who are interested in this. They're discriminating donors because they're actually willing to read a tax document. Um, and so if you can take the time to make it a better read, a more interesting read, and not just a bunch of numbers on a piece of paper, um, I just think it serves you in the long run. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear Kristen talk about how she said, when we're through the audit process, we sit down with the whole staff and we say, what story do these numbers tell about our program? And the through line of their program is really, and she said this of, we're a higher quality arts program. Sure. You could get, you could have someone come in and volunteer to teach art classes and pay nothing for it. But we have outcomes, we have evaluation, we know that we are providing something of service that the kids will use for the rest of their lives. Um, and we have the data to prove it. Right. So therefore, we invest in this, this, and this. And that's the story our financial documents say. I was so impressed by that. I don't know many organizations that really say, let's turn these numbers 
let's let's say what these numbers mean to us. Well, and I think you could even go a step back on it for, you know, for some, you know, younger nonprofit leaders, which is to ask yourself the question of does our 990 reflect what I want us to be doing? Um, you know, if you're spending all of your money on X, but you think of yourself as an organization that does Y, um, you know, then I think it's fair to ask, should we be changing our operations up? And, you know, so many boards and so many executive directors are so quick to run off to do strategic planning. Let's put together a five-year strategic plan. Let's hire the consultants. Let's waste everybody's time. Um, I think an easy way to start your strategic planning is to go look at your 990 and ask yourself is, does this document reflect what I think we're all about and what I think we do every day and what we do well and see if there's a connection between the numbers in terms of outputs in terms of what you actually do? Yeah. Uh, one thing I saw someone do really early on in my career was just quick go through any budget they were given and always figure out the percentages, which should be given to you anyway, I think, as a board. But just saying, OK, we're spending 30 percent of our funds on this. Is this that important that a third of our budget goes to it? And that's a really, I think, effective template for looking at those kind of things in meetings because you usually don't get a lot of time to sit with them. Sure. And then the next extension of that is what you're saying Christy said, which is if we're doing 30% of that and we want that to be 30% of what we do and our budget reflects that's 30%, is that then encompass 30% of our storytelling? Exactly. Is that 30% of our communications? Yeah. yeah. Um, because if it's not, there's something wrong. We're either embarrassed by something we're doing or we're not trumpeting it properly um, or we're doing the wrong thing. Right. And then I think the other thing with the 992 is to look at the trends over year over year. So I think there's I've seen some organizations be able to say, look, we've gotten more efficient at delivering this like because we're serving more people every year, but our budget numbers are staying the same. Sure. And you have to pull that out for people because they only see one year. Uh, but you have the space to say it and you can really talk about your organization's growth and where you're going and your your vision for the future in that document. And you can always add pages to the 992. Um, there, you know, at the end, it, yeah. it, you know, I've seen people go ahead and and file their audit with it because there is a big disconnect between the 990 and the audit and what's generally accepted accounting principles and how certain things are booked and how they're not. I've seen good nonprofits go ahead and just attach the audit um, to say, here it is. You can have this too if you're looking for a full organizational wow. financial picture. So um, there really are no rules because no one's really looking at it on the back end. Right. Um, so go ahead and use it as an informational document. That's great. Um, as a funder, what do you look at in the 990? Where, where does your eye go? I, I look at the obvious things and the things that we cared about at Charity Navigator. I do want to know um, how much you're spending on programs. I want to know what your admin rates are. I want to know what your fundraising rates are. Um, I'm looking for conflicts of interest. I'm looking for self-dealing. Um, I'm looking to see um, who gets paid at your organization. Usually, I'm actually disappointed to find that people are getting paid less than I think they should get. Um, you know, um, but, you know... I like it when people tell me about their accomplishments and they yeah. compare it to the previous years and, and go ahead and run with it. So, um, you know, I read it not a whole lot differently than I read an annual report. Um, I'm not under any, you know, misperception that it was created by somebody who didn't work for you, whether it's, you know, your accountant who works down the street or whether it's your communications department that's in your building. They're both paid by you. They're both marketing documents in some way or another with slightly different reporting requirements. Um, so I want to know what you have to say about your organization. And again, we just said, what's important to you as an organization? Why does it disappoint you when salaries are 
under where you think they should be? Because I think most organizations would assume that funders want you to be so efficient that you're underpaying everyone. That's an exaggeration. Yeah, but, I understand. But tell me why, why it disappoints you. Because I do think that we need to treat nonprofits more as a business. The stakes are are vital here. Um, you know, we're, we're doing very important things, um, and we need to attract the most qualified people that we can get. Um, and the long term health of your organization is dependent on you having good people and keeping those people. Um, and you know, one of the you know the dangers of the nine ninety is that if you're working at your organization and you're making a hundred thousand dollars, but you look on someone else's nine ninety for a similar organization, you see that they pay their person $120,000, you know, you're going to A, have a little bit of uh, disappointment that you're being compensated at what you're being compensated at, but you're also more likely to flip open when a job opening comes. And, you know, continuity is good in the nonprofit world. If you have good people, pay them what they're worth and try to keep them. Sounds good. Thanks, Trent. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm Kristen Paglia, and I'm the CEO for an arts organization named PS Arts. And thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Stephanie McGrath, and I'm the Associate Director of Communications for PS Arts. I'm so glad to have you both here. So let's start uh, with an easy question. Tell me about PS Arts. PS Arts is an arts education organization, and we work in primarily Southern California and Central California, providing arts instructions in dance, theater, visual arts, and music to uh, underserved communities and public schools. And that's weekly arts education in the school year for for the whole school year. So PS Arts serves about 25,000 kids in Southern and Central California. We work primarily to restore arts education in schools per federal guidelines around uh, how much kids should be engaging in visual arts, music, dance, and theater. Uh, particularly in schools where there's no, there's certainly no school district or government funding, and that's actually pretty true of all of California. But we work in schools where there's also no parent uh, revenue stream or corporate revenue stream that's going to support that work. Um, I like to say that we are not as much an arts organization as we are a contributor to education improvement. We want public schools to be higher quality, and we believe that putting arts in schools makes better teachers, makes for a nicer, more safe, and more equitable climate for kids to learn in and thrive and grow in. And we believe that we also can have some influence in terms of public policy around uh, how education, how public schools should look in California. You made a distinction there between schools that have corporate income or a parent income. Um, they're able to supplement. Right. 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 So, in fact, that's how a good majority of arts programs in public schools are functioning right now, particularly in L.A. County. There are school district funds that go into arts, but they are wildly restricted. And typically, if a school has an art teacher, that is funded by either the Ed Foundation, private donations, parents. Um, some school districts have tax initiatives that may be contributing, but of course, in the school districts that we work in, Compton and Inglewood and Lawndale and Lenox and Linwood, these school districts really don't have an opportunity to provide these services to students through any other route than PS Arts. You've been the CEO for 10 years. 
I've been the CEO for a bunch of years and the I came on as program director. Oh, so you've been with the organization for 10 years. Yes. So my former job was designing the curriculum and training the teachers and really thinking strategically and systemically about how an arts program can improve student outcomes in general. And I think it was a really, the reason I say all that is I think it was an important foundation to moving into being the CEO because I actually have, you know, I've been a teacher, I've been an arts teacher, dance teacher, and I really base all of our decisions on how I think we're going to produce the highest quality program for the resources that we have. I think in nonprofit, there's often a split between practice and administration in that way. So I think that's one of the advantages we have. And I have a staff who backs me up. Speaking of staff, (laughs) Stephanie, you work as the Associate Director of Communications. What does that entail? Oh, boy. I mean, Working for a nonprofit the size of PS Arts, I do work primarily in marketing and communications for the whole organization and specifically on the advancement side, so the fundraising elements of it. Like any nonprofit, I wear many hats. So on any given day, it could be doing marketing and communications dedicated uh, tasks, or it could be lending a hand where it's needed, attending a family art night, going to a classroom, um, which are always the highlights of the job, you know, being able to see our programs in action. But for the most part, you know, I'm I'm really working on our communications, um, putting together newsletters and sharing our story more widely and sourcing content from the various different departments that we have. You know, since our staff is primarily 20 people in the office, administrative staff, but we have a huge cohort of faculty that are actually out in the schools. It takes a lot of coordination of getting feedback from them and making sure that we're all in constant communication to be able to put those materials together to tell our story better. Um, I kind of, I would love to punctuate that too, that it, Stephanie's position is relatively new and we made a concerted effort um, in our last strategic planning process to utilize our positive outcomes are story to have greater influence on the field. And so this is very different than kind of framing uh, what she does or communications and marketing as a revenue producing strategy. It's really a position in the organization that is and should be dedicated to having a wider impact on our cause and forwarding our mission, which I think is maybe a little bit misunderstood in nonprofit marketing and communications in general. Tell me why it's misunderstood. Oh, Oh, well, for me, I think that people think of it as like we're promoting our events and our ticket sales and uh, making sure that schools are aware of us and districts are aware of us so that they can they can, um, you know, buy our services or can you know make a contribution or apply to be part of the program. And now all of that is part of it. But we were doing that fairly well before we brought Stephanie on board. So her background and expertise, particularly around social media, really is more geared towards, in my mind, the idea is that we're a great secret. Um, what we do, the model, the way that we change kids' lives is a secret, and that is um, pretty pretty well known in LA, and then maybe not so much beyond that. And so the board of trustees really 
felt it was important to expand that awareness of not just arts are important for kids, which is out there in the world, but it matters how you deliver it. It matters how you train teachers. It matters how you uh, sustain and where you allocate resources. And I think that's something that PS Arts does uh, very well um, that other, hopefully other school districts and organizations can learn from. So it sounds like you're saying raising uh, the bar of our expectations of what arts education is raising our bar of the expectations and shifting our focus from this kind of desperation of anything is good right right anything that's not zero in arts is good yes kids yeah arts is better than no arts if you look at the research almost universally it's it's better than nothing is your finding Uh (laughs) uh-huh and i want to say through ps arts we can do better than better than nothing. We can set high expectation outcomes and we can show you how when we structure the number of minutes per week, when we structure the background of the teacher and the training of the teacher, when we involve the school and the community and engage them in events, we can actually uh, really move the needle in a, in a significant way. So you have to teach people how to think about arts education. Um, and you also have to kind of deliver facts that might not be as you're scrolling through Facebook what you're there to see. So how do you package that information so that it's that is received? We're certainly testing that at every given moment and sort of looking at different ways to present that information because sometimes I find that there are two types of people. Um, The ones that are really data-driven and are very interested in knowing how many students and how much it costs and what are the tangible outcomes from this. And then there are people that really enjoy hearing a good story and hearing the testimonials from the students and really seeing uh, that work come to life in front of them. And so we're always kind of balancing those two means of telling our story. We want to share those facts and really show that there is a very immediate impact that arts education has, but we also want to share the amazing stories of our students. And so lately, we've been sharing more stories of our teaching artists that show both how we are preparing our teachers to go into the classrooms, and then they get to share their story of the impact that they're having on their students. And so it's kind of a win-win for us um, in that way. I'm really glad that you brought that up, Stephanie, and that you put it in that way, because sort of for a concrete example, we have been doing at PSR something pretty unusual for a nonprofit our size for years and that we do a rigorous evaluation looking at individual student outcomes. So we can talk about how much progress our students have made uh, in the relationship between their literacy, for example, and arts education or their uh, sense of self, their sense, their sense of self-confidence, um, their sense of belonging in a school. These are some really concrete things that we have measured, and we have a 25,000 child data set with which to measure, which is really unusual. It crosses rural and urban and uh, economic groups. And so, you know, we have all of this data, and we didn't have a strong way to deploy those findings. So we did the easy thing, which is what most people do. We, We have done numbers of kids, cost per kid. Who cares is what I say at the end of the day. What I really want to know is how did it affect a child's life? And so Stephanie is kind of charged with and the whole organization is, and including teaching artists are looking at what really matters. What is the data that we want to to share that is that tells a, a, an important story instead of 
the easy story and how do we share that in a way that is uh, really accessible? Mm-hmm. So I have two questions about that because I know some people are going to listen to that and say, well, that must be nice if you have the money to pay for that evaluation. Rewind for me and talk to me about how you got people to invest in that evaluation. Oh, well, that is such a good story. I did not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Only only recently, actually, have we gotten grants for evaluation. Our evaluation protocol is primarily internally developed. Uh, I designed it. That's part of my background as a statistician and my work. But we actually trained our faculty who do not have necessarily specific skills um, or, or a background in data collection or analysis, but we train them, we retrain every year, and we look at reliability and validity. We make sure that they are all on the same page about what they're looking at when they review student portfolios and how they are uh, ranking students on a rubric. We have a, a rubric that goes from sort of a developing skill level to excelling skill level, and we've defined very clearly what that means. And then we have uh, summer interns who do the uh, data cleaning and, and that sort of thing. And then I do most of the analysis. Wow. So we actually have done a lot of that internally. Recently, we've worked with California Alliance for Arts Education, and we've worked with various universities, including UCLA and uh, CalArts at one point. We worked with James Catterall, who's passed away since then, um, and that's all you know, pro bono work for the most part, doing external evaluation using our, um, our data and some of their data. Wow. So you... Um I'll, I'll repeat back what I heard. Sorry, I think yeah, that's no, a lot I of think, information. No, I yeah. think it's incredible, and I just want to underline it, which is that you trained the people in the classroom to be data collectors, uh, and then you put enough layers over it so that it gets cleaned, it's reliable, and then it gets analyzed, and you did that all internally with the resources you had. That's the idea. Amazing. So now, if somebody is an executive director and is possibly, like, maybe not a statistician, where would you recommend they start in doing that? Is it collect what you can, or how, how do you, what advice would you have for someone? Uh, wh- I Yes, collect what you can. Partner with organizations, graduate students, universities, partner with people who are doing this work in any way and interested in the work. Um, And then I think back to what we were talking about in terms of the communications role at PS Arts. One of the things that we hope to do to further our mission and have impact is disseminate resources and make them free and available. So our evaluation protocol is available online to be used by anyone who wants to use it. Amazing. Um, and also, I I and our staff are available to do trainings and consultation. And that we do on a fee basis, but of course we'll work with organizations to make it possible. Ultimately, our mission is to move move the needle in and, and further our cause in arts education. So I was in preparation for talking to you today all over your website. And one of the things that I noticed about it was that you managed to get a whole lot of information on your website organized incredibly well, but it looks like your website is almost a complete grant application on there. <laughs> like I, I was on there and I was looking at your strategic plan. I saw like, I think eight years of financial statements and eight years of audited document. And I was like, oh my gosh, like everything is on here. And it felt like you were very intentional in being transparent with everything. 
But also, it seems like you're talking to foundations and investors and people that can come in and support the work. Is that intentional? Did I read that right? Almost. I think the idea around the website was this is how we can get started with resource dissemination Mm -hmm. and information. So we almost thought of it as like a a research hub. So it's not so much that we're speaking necessarily to foundations or as in a grant application, but to educators and parents who are in the field and who are, you know, if a a superintendent says to uh, themselves, I want to you know, I want to learn more about arts education. I want PS Arts's website to be the go-to resource website. That was the vision around that. Great. And I'll jump in and say that our website is far from perfect. Uh, I, I don't know of any perfect website. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's a work in progress, constantly being updated and changed and modified to make it more user-friendly and accessible. And I have conversations with people on our staff all the time about how to make their particular information more interesting and appealing and accessible. Um, it's you know, something that's going to always sort of be a work in progress. It's great to hear you talk like that, because I think the problem with most nonprofit websites, and we've talked about it on this show before, is that there's really no reason for someone to be on them unless you wanted to read a brochure. Right. But Mm -hmm. to have to be intentional about the being a resource is a very nice mission statement for a website Mm -hmm. to say we're doing this work. We're not just going to tell you about our work, but we also want to be a resource. Right. But we want it to be accessible. And that's the thing that probably I couldn't do without an outside eye on it, because I think everyone should be fascinated by (laughs) my writing. (laughs) (laughs) Spoken like a writer. (laughs) But it's true. So all throughout your website, too, you seem to be communicating your case for support. How I heard you say it is, here's why arts... Uh, in the classroom is important. Here's what that means. And here's why you should care about high quality arts education. What we're essentially saying is we are going to give you the best possible curriculum. We are going to give you the skills and knowledge that you need in the arts that are going to help you get jobs and college opportunities. We are also going to have a pedagogy and a teacher training model and work with classroom teachers so that students are in an envi- a learning environment that is that is optimal. And we are also going to engage parents and communities, bring them to schools, have family art events, have opportunities for everyone to invest in the success of these children. Mm-hmm. That to us is a full model of arts education. It isn't about, I'm going to learn the difference between um, you know, primary and secondary colors by second grade or whatever. It, <laughs> it's about, I am going to be able to look at the world and have both the concrete skills and knowledge to make a difference as well as the sense of self and empowerment to make a difference. Talk to me too about the the overhead and administration that makes the program run. Yes. Um, and that's actually, that's an, a really interesting thing. We, so of course we have to have the, you know, the, the office space and the, the general overhead. We try to minimize that as much as we can. In terms of employees, we are really thoughtful about how we dedicate funding so that it's serving multiple purposes. So, for example, Stephanie is on our advancement team. Obviously, it's part of our fundraising and revenue-producing initiative, but half of the dollars, at least, if not more, that we invest in someone like Stephanie is to further our mission. Mm -hmm. The same thing with our, our program managers, for example. Our program managers are 
for the for in large part have master's degrees in arts education or a related field. Um, I think of them almost like a school structure, right? So like the a department head, where they are experts in the field. So not only can they do the program management in terms of budget building, administration, um, coordination, communications, all of that. That's kind of the the typical program management job. They are also responsible for quality control. So again, we are investing our dollars not just in the administration. But in, they are the people that are doing internal evaluation along with me. They are the people that are doing observations of teaching artists and running all of our professional development programs. They're reviewing our curriculum, um, making sure that it is it's best for kids. So nobody, I mean, I guess the way you put it is everybody wears multiple hats. And I would say that in our case... It's not just the multiple hats of I do what's needed of me, but one of those hats has to be I further our mission in a substantial way. Mm -hmm. And Stephanie, how do you feel like you further the mission? Is it supporting the programs or is there more to it? Uh, I mean, yes, both. I, you know, like Christy mentioned, I work in the advancement team, so which deals primarily with fundraising. But ultimately, a communications role is really about engagement and engagement with our constituents, with our donors, uh, basically with anybody who is involved with the organization and making sure that they're well informed about what we're doing and why their support is important. And so it doesn't just live within the realm of development. It really does take forms at our community events and in our classrooms and making sure that our faculty and our parents and school administrators all have the tools to talk productively about PS Arts and why it's important. I, I have to give a shout out to our deputy director, Elda Panetta, who, uh, of course, she does all of your you know operations and, and human resources and the stuff that makes my head want to melt. But she also is responsible for making sure that our core values and mission permeate everything we do. And we do that in a really concrete way. We don't just say we do that. We actually have weekly staff meetings where we respond to a writing prompt um, around a specific ethical, moral, or social justice issue question. Uh, we are constantly doing study sessions with our staff and our trustees around issues that are important in arts education. We out produce a something called a RECAP. And I, what's the acronym for RECAP, Stephanie? It's I can never remember. Research, <laughs> equity, calls to action, advocacy, and policy. And so, <laughs> so we do that as part of that doesn't generate any revenue. We do that as part of our service to the community and part of our, our nonprofit mission. So we really try to make sure that administration is never just administration. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense. And I think a lot of a lot of organizations, I mean, like the simplest version of it is a cost centered budget, right? So where you're splitting up your overhead and saying, you know, any administration we do is in service of the programs. Um, but it sounds like you're taking it a step further. Yes. Yes. Of course, you know, there's always the argument, well, without money, we can't run. Or if we didn't have, if we didn't spend money, if we didn't invest in events, we couldn't use that money for operations. And that's true on the sort of most global level, but we really do work hard to make sure that our return on investment is always as high as it possibly can be. Where we run pretty lean. Stephanie said 20 people on the staff. I think it's 16. Yeah. <laughs> 
Call that so. it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, taken care of. Yeah. Sixteen to twenty. There's four people sometimes. I'm that just are there. saying you when know. you're when you're in budgeting like I am right now, I'm telling you four people is a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's, a, that's significant. Um, you know, four people's four schools in my yeah. mind in terms of service. That's so great. we don't we don't have anyone on staff. I I think of everything, and I think all of us do, is how much arts education for students could this buy? Mm-hmm. And what are we gaining here that is worth giving that up? And, you know, speaking about Elda, something that she has been talking about a lot recently is how we center all of our jobs around the mission of the organization. And whether it's student-centered or program-centered or, you know, education-centered, that all of us are in service of that particular goal. And I really appreciate that kind of thinking. How do you tell your financial story? That's so boring. (laughs) (laughs) This is the kind of content people come for. (laughs) How do we tell our financial story? Well, um, a multitude of ways. So obviously, we have all of our public documents. We have our 990s and and, uh, and our financial statements that are on our website. I think that the best way to, to phrase it is once we are finished with our audit, and well, I would say it happens twice a year, between budgeting and auditing, we literally sit down with our uh, uh, finance director and our deputy director and the and the senior staff members, and we narrate a story. We actually tell our own story so that we can translate that to foundations and donors and other things. So when we look at it, we will literally say, you know, this means that uh, we have teachers who are providing X number of minutes to students in the classrooms, but we are also cognizant of the fact that these are professionals and they deserve paid time off and they deserve to have uh, to have benefits, medical benefits, and they deserve to have support and they deserve to be have training and they deserve a retreat and maybe like some snacks once in a while at that. <laughs> so, you know, it's every penny is accounted for mindfully. So you, you said this was boring, but I think this is fascinating. So you're looking at your budget, you're looking at your audit and you're saying, this is where we spent money and this is the story it tells. Right. You're not going through line item by line item and saying, this is what this line item is but you're looking at a big picture. Is that right? exactly right. And that's how we make decisions on the financial piece as well. So there is not a line item on our budget that is unexplored that that we have not sat down and said, how much does this actually cost? Let's make sure that's historically true. How does this serve the organization? Is this something that we can give up? What is the value of this? I mean, for example... um, those vague items like uh, donor relations, uh-huh. right? So a lot of nonprofits, they put a, a number in. What could that be? That could be maybe lunches and breakfasts for cultivation. That could be a, a, a board retreat. That could be all kinds of you know gifts for high-level donors or mm-hmm. things like that. So we really look at that every year, for example, and that's typically the first thing to go because I want everything explained in terms of why do we do this? What do we benefit from it? How do kids benefit from it? And can we do it another way? Is it really important that we have vellum envelopes instead of paper envelopes, for example? And actually to that exact thing, here's a really good example of our core values and program being pervasive. I brought that specific thing up recently because I thought it was obnoxious and I didn't think it would make any difference whether or not people, uh, I thought we'll have the same people coming to the event regardless. And 
the pushback I got, which I'd never anticipated, was we don't want to use those envelopes we used last year because they're not recycled and because we're, we're, we're cutting down on single-use plastic and because we have that responsibility as well. And yes, it is important to spend that money. And I was like, well, damn. <laughs> not what I expected at all. So it's, so it's that's why we have 40 people between the board and the staff at the table to look at every single line item. But I think that's great because I think most organizations are approaching finance or and especially audit as that's a thing we have to do and it happens over here and it's after the fact and it doesn't, it, it's a box we check and it's a requirement we have. It's not part of our strategy. Mm-hmm. And you're very intentional in making it part of your strategy. Part and that's strategy. why I think it's exciting. And building consensus around value. It's even part of our our marketing and promotional strategy. I mean, uh, Stephanie alluded to people need to understand the value of arts education. It's our job to quantify what that value is. It's not enough to say, hey, it has value. We want to say, hey, it has value and we can actually put a number on that. And not only that, but when we look at where we have to make cuts or where we have to trim, we know where we can trim both programmatically and administratively that will have no effect on the quality or minimal effect on the quality of the program because of that level of analysis. See, very exciting. So exciting. <laughs> I, I stand corrected. Um, in the 10 years you've been with the organization, what would you say is the best practice that has made you the most successful? <sighs> I think the demand for excellence. I think centering our um, everything we do around excellence has made a huge impact, and that and concretely that has resulted in we you know we don't hire interns to do jobs that high level professionals should do. We don't skimp out on faculty salaries. You know we have a a scale where you can earn more money if you do more training and have more expertise. We really, you know, going back to this value thing, I think our best practice is a philosophy that we invest in value. How do you make something that starts as not excellent into excellent? That we we work on every day. Um, and we Google a lot. <laughs> we do a lot of self-development, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of I think everyone on our staff is a lifelong learner. And we, we hold that common value. I think we are people who are excited about solving problems and we go after those answers and that can look at different ways and with when needed the organization invests in that we had for example we went I don't know, 20 years of the organization without a certified HR professional. And we outsourced the, some of that. We did some of that internally. We, we relied on the board for some of that. And uh, our deputy director really advocated saying, listen, we need to invest in this. And our, our office administrator agreed to go through a, a program and become certified and serve the organization after that. So those are the kinds of things that I think are decisions that come up every day. We recognize a weakness. We try to to make it feasible, you know, to whatever degree we have within our resources. And if we need to invest in something that feels like it's beyond our resources, we make a case for it with our board of directors and our other donors and hope to get it funded. I've seen excellence on a couple of strategic plans, and I always push back on it and say, like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean in practice? Because sometimes it just means I'm going to get real demanding, <laughs> you know, and be unhappy with a lot of stuff. And you're like, that's not the way to do it. But that's very tangible to say it's an iterative process, and we're going to get incremental Im- improvements, but be very focused on hitting excellence. Right. Yeah. Excellence is probably a goal 
we'll never achieve. Um, and I don't just mean we PS Arts, but I think... Well, it's one of those people those, goals, you know? Yeah, it's one of those finish lines that always moves, right? Right. So it makes it especially frustrating <laughs> to see it sometimes, but that's very clearly Frustrating defined. or exciting. There you go. That's true. <laughs> um, let's finish up with a story about a kid or a family that you feel like you've really had some impact on. There are so, so many. I'm going to tell the one that I that made me do this work. I didn't start out being a nonprofit administrator. I was a teacher and a dancer, and it sucked me in, as often happens. But early on, as I was developing curriculum at PS Arts, I was in a classroom, and it was a dance classroom, and it was around the holiday time. And I have kids as well, and my kids were at their schools making, you know, those gifts that they bring home for for every year, you know, the like candle holders or the the things. And, and then talking about gifts and talking about things they would like to give. And in this classroom, this dance classroom, this very high poverty school in Los Angeles, the teacher had them pantomime gifts that they would give to a classmate. They were pantomiming sort of typical kid things, but we came around to one little girl who was in a wheelchair and who had sort of very little facility with her body, but she was able with her fingers to start weaving this pattern into her fingers. And she she moved herself kind of around to another little girl who had been outside the circle and who was very withdrawn and who wasn't participating and who clearly had been crying. And she started uh, moving her fingers above this girl's head and, and into the air and on her back. And she said, I give you the gift of wings. And I was sort of floored. (laughs) And I thought this is why the arts are important is because it gives people an opportunity to have something to give, even if you don't have material things. And it gives people, children and adults, the empathy to see who is in need and see past your own need and your own desires. You know, this little girl wasn't thinking about a gift in terms of how most second graders do, right? And and saying, I'm going to give you something I would like. She identified um, a special gift for someone she thought needed it. So that's, that's why I like arts education. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.